The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. All right. And this isn't isn't a long one. No, and it's the end of Acts. Oh, my goodness. Was that joy or sorrow? It's It's a combination. And the worship band really prepared us for the excitement of the crescendo of Paul finally getting to Rome. So if you can turn with me to page, um, if you have the Bibles in the front, um, 1124. And we're going to read from Acts 28, verse 17 to 31. Three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders. That's hype. (laughs) (laughs) When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk to you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our people who have come from there have reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in in large numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them and from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made his final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For these people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been set to to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ and with all boldness, without hindrance. Thanks. God bless the reading. Yes. Yeah. um, That I think is important. Uh, We we start here. The word sect. Um, Does sect sound like something that is opposite of what you've been a part of? Or does it sound like it's a portion of something that's already been included, like it's a portion of a whole, right? Right. It's, 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 it's not something that is in competition with it. It's like, you know, there's this, there's this group, but there's a sect inside of this group that is doing something. I, want, I, want, I think it's important that we get this, because the Roman Jews that have come multiple cities away, like they've traveled out to greet Paul to walk him to Rome. That's where we left off last week. They are now talking to each other about Paul and what he has to say, and they're like, you represent that sect of our faith. So the posture of the Jewish people in Rome wasn't that Paul was starting another religion, but that he was expressing it in a way that was unique inside of their fellowship. I think it's really important that we see this. But one of the things that I think is really interesting here is that the Jews that are greeting Paul 
seem very ill-informed about who Paul is. It seems like they have their full opinion of Paul based upon the letter that he had written them, obviously several years prior, the letter that we actually have in the Bible called Romans. It had arrived to them well before Paul had ever even shown up. But they're not hearing from Jerusalem. They don't have an opinion based upon the testimony here of, of things that had happened in Jerusalem. Word hadn't spread that he was coming to Jerusalem because of some evil that he had done. He, their opinion was is that he was coming before Caesar because he represented this certain type of thinking that was inside of their faith. And because of that, he was now coming before Caesar. And if we look at other historians, people outside of the scriptures of the first century, and if some of them are correct, we, will, we realize that in Rome, 10 years prior to Paul's arrival, so we need to understand this, Paul isn't coming to Rome and telling people about Jesus for the first time. Paul is coming and now talking to the early church to build them up and to encourage them in Rome. Right? And so if, if the historians are correct, Christians from this sect of Judaism had been expelled from Rome 10 years prior. So there was a riot and a revolt amongst Jewish people. And if you go back in the book of Acts, what was the worst thing you could do in a city underneath Roman control? Cause a riot. Like even in the story of the city of Ephesus, the people were were getting riled up against Paul because he was changing the economy and the worship in the city. And so the people formed a riot, and the governor calmed the crowd down, not because Paul was wrong, but because he filled Rome coming and taking away their freedom because they were rioting. And so the Christians and the sect of thinking that Jesus was the Messiah had gone to war, so to speak, with the Jews in Rome about Jesus, and they had had some kind of public confrontation inside of themselves that obviously some Romans probably were involved in, but yet they were then now being expelled until they had to leave. So they had to leave their houses, their economics, their jobs, their businesses. But sometime, a couple of years prior to Paul arriving, as we know history well, the, um, the governor, the, the Caesar of Rome, had allowed Jewish people back into Rome. So this has all had already taken place. Jewish sect of thinking around Jesus had been expelled. All Jews actually had been expelled. Now they're all being invited back. Now Paul's showing up. You guys get the timeline? The history here. This is what's happening, or what has happened as Paul is coming in. Now, Luke, in his writing style, in this particular chapter, has incredibly frustrated me. Um, this story is so incomplete, in my opinion. I am left desiring more. And I think there's a point to that, but we'll get to that in just a minute. Because, much like Acts chapter 15, didn't even know what happened at the end of Acts chapter 15? Some of you are looking down and scrolling in your electronic Bibles really quickly. But there was a beautiful council that had taken place saying that Gentiles were included and no extra things were going to be added to them. And then what happened at the end of that as they were starting to leave to go tell Gentiles that they could be included? Who was in conflict with each other? Paul and Barnabas, right? right? They were talking about who was going to be included and they didn't agree on that. And um, Barnabas wanted John Mark. Paul wanted nothing to do with him. And there was an argument and there's no resolution. It just left it. 
But yet we know by the end of the book of Philippians that Paul was calling for Barnabas to come join him. But there has been nothing since Acts 15 about Paul and Barnabas doing anything together when for several chapters they did everything together. And Luke is doing this again in this letter. And I'm like, Luke, why are you doing this? This is not good penmanship, not penmanship, writing style. (laughs) Penmanship. That was stupid. Um, (laughs) All right, never mind. I guess I'm totally distracted in my head. I'm having a war with myself right now. But um, but to me, it's a terrible writing style. But I think part of it is the point. The point is, is that he doesn't want to solve everything for us because he wants us to live. He wants us to live in the tension, which is a word that we've talked about a lot in our church family the last couple of years. He wants us to begin to see, no, what happens? What do we do? What do we do? And he doesn't want to prescribe everything for us. He wants us to seek the Spirit to know what to do. And there's a little bit of that, I feel like, happening in here. Um, but the point of the message, which I, I just want to touch on Paul's testimony again here, as well as the things that he said leading up to Isaiah 6, I think the point of this message was that Paul was meant to get to, get to Caesar and to say, Israel God is God, not you. The creator is God, not you. The God of Abraham, the God that gave us the Messiah Jesus, is now seated on the throne. And without saying it quite as directly as this, he's basically saying to Caesar, you are a low-grade imitation of what a real Lord really is. So Paul has now made it. God said, you're going to look the Lord of the earth in the face and say that the Lord of all is now on the throne. That was what Paul had been commissioned to do all along. The entire um, commissioning from basically Acts 15 all the way on, Paul has had this incredible confidence that he was going to get to Rome and testify in front of Caesar that Jesus was Lord. And when you look at this, this is the first time that Paul actually gets involved and starts to call Jesus by this messianic name, and he's using kingdom language, which for you and I, it doesn't impact us the same way. But in the first century, when you started to talk about kingdom and kingdom changes, that was revolutionary language. We read it in the scriptures like, yeah, that just makes sense. It's part of the story. It's part of Jesus renewing the earth. But in the first century, if you said that there was another kingdom and there was another Lord, the current Lord and the current kingdom had a serious problem with you. And Paul seemed to be seeking that out. And Paul always seemed to just be willing to look at trouble in the face. There was even a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, about 100 years after this, like so in the second century, actually said this, and this is what I quote, better to study and keep the law in private than to get involved in talk of the kingdom. Let me say this one more time. I didn't put it on a slide for you, and I probably should have. Better to study and keep the law in private than to get involved in talk of the kingdom. Can I just say, I think that has become the church. From Acts 29 to Acts 30 to Acts 2000, Acts 2019, all the chapters that are being added, I would say that this particular rabbi, that's un, that I don't have the exact name, and even if I did, I probably couldn't pronounce it, so I avoid names when I possibly can, I believe that that's become the posture of the church. I want to be right with God. I want to understand right thinking, but I am too much in fear of telling other people what I think about God and what I think about Jesus. It's safer for me to just keep my mouth shut. But if he is the Messiah, if he really 
rose from the dead, if he really ascended into heaven, and if he really is the glory of all glories, do we have a choice? If that is really true, and this is what we really are, quote, hanging our, our lives, our faith, our hope, our love in, if we're really hanging on to that, do we have a choice to keep our mouth shut? Because if he really is Lord and he tells you to speak, shouldn't we speak because we're being obedient to whom we claim is our Lord? Like, as a, as a parent with children, it doesn't do me any good if my kids just obey me between their ears. And I know we have a lot of people from other places, and that might sound like an idiom or a colloquialism, but do you get what I'm saying when I say that? Like, it doesn't do me any good for my kids just to think in their head what would please mom and dad. The best act of obedience that my kids can do for us is to pre-think, to think ahead about what pleases mom and dad and do it before we even get home. That is the start of an excellent family night. I just want you guys to know. But the worst is coming home and seeing plates and dishes everywhere and video game in hand and the phrase being, oh yeah, I forgot. That generally starts family night on a different plane um, and all of that. And I think that our Father in Heaven, who is gracious, guys, he is loving and he is kind. But if he is the creator, if he's the life giver, if he's the sustainer, if he's the one that is truly seated on the throne and he says, Ellis, I want you to talk about me, I can't just say, okay, and walk away and just think about talking about him. I've got to engage with him. I've got to talk to others around me. Um, this passage in Isaiah that, is, that was referenced here and actually Paul or Luke actually included verses 9 through, I think, uh, uh, 10 or 11 in this particular passage, he included it, 9 and 10, is the, one of the most referenced Old Testament scriptures in the New Testament. Isaiah 6, 9 and 10 is mentioned in Matthew, it's mentioned in Mark, it's mentioned in Luke, it's mentioned in John, and Paul uses it again to his letter to the church in Rome. But the scriptures that are read in the Christian church in our generation the most are not verses 9 and 10. Which verses are the ones out of that passage that we read the most? We read verses 1 through 8. This holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's like, wow, I'm getting a chance to see. I am not worthy. I am unclean. I am just not. Let me have the fires, the coals come and touch my tongue so that I can. And then the, the phrase... Who will go? And then Isaiah's like, send me, right? And that's what we read all the time. But then you read what was stated, which then becomes the impact of this message. And the message is that you were a people that was supposed to be a blessing to all nations, but you have corrupted it in your sinfulness and have turned my blessings in your life onto yourself for selfish gain. This is what's happening in Isaiah 6. You said you would go. You didn't. You took all of the identity as being my people and used it for your own gain. Shame on you. Matter of fact, not just shame on you, you're going to have a bad day. That's really what ended up happening. Several bad generations. The message and the plan of salvation in the Old Testament through the nation of Israel was a, you hear from me and you now go and do. And the same is true in our day and time. We heard from the Lord, now we must go and do. And when we don't do that, we're not honoring our Lord. 
And so Isaiah, I love what N.T. Wright and the way he says this. Uh, and I put it on a slide so you can track along with me. Anything else would constitute mere favoritism on God's part. Now listen, how many times do people struggle with the Old Testament because it seems like God favored the children of Israel over the other nations? Think about just reading the story of the Promised Land and other nations and wars against nations and Israel amassing wealth and building the temple of God even on the backs of slaves and all this. There's so much in the Old Testament that's like, man, that does not paint a beautiful picture of God. And God says, true, that's not what I wanted for these people. And he goes on to say this, N.T. Wright goes on to say, but that is why in the note that is struck in Romans 11, though not here, Paul insists that though Isaiah 6 and passages like it do indeed stand for the moment as the sorrowful, puzzling, poignant note over the majority of Abraham's physical offspring, that cannot be the last word. And it will be precisely as Paul preaching to the Gentiles that will alert the Jewish people to their plight and make some at least want to come back and believe. That's found in Romans 11, 11 through 32. The Gentiles will indeed listen to the message of salvation, verse 28. But Paul has already told the church in Rome that this will itself be the means of Israel's full inclusion. The light to lighten the Gentiles must also be the glory of God's people, Israel. Now, Let me just make this personal. We have been given hope. But that is not for our gain. That is not for our comfort and our peace and our thankfulness. We've been given it to give it. Why would we not want other people to sit in confidence and in, in, in truth and in hope that what God had said to us is also good for them? We can't just be content. All right, so that's, that's Isaiah 6. But what happened next? Like in this passage of Scripture, like what, I mean, it just says that Paul got a chance to rent a space and for two years taught and I'm like, okay, so what does this mean? So there's been three things, and there's some of you, this is just for you. There's like a handful of you that are just, give me the intellectual components of this chapter. And so let me tell you what a few theologians have said about the way that Acts has ended just so abruptly. Um, I actually heard it said this way. And some of you, any of you, when you're out at a restaurant with a friend, wish you brought a piece of paper and a pen, and then so you go looking for a napkin? So you start writing and talking on a napkin to one another. Have any of you ever done that? Am I not the only one? Is that something that just pastors do? Please, somebody tell me you've done it. Okay, there's a few of you. The rest of you have never written on a napkin. Have you ever written on the palm of your hand to a friend? Anybody? Come on. Don't let me feel alone in this. Shame on you. All right? You're guilty. I see it on your hands now. Right? But so what we end up doing is, is whether it's on a hand or a napkin, we start, but then what happens so quickly you realize you're running out of space. And so you try to flip the napkin over, or you shorthand it, or you say over, and you put parentheses around it, right? And you try to create it, and, or you say to your friend, well, if we had more room, I would explain this more fully. There's, there are a group of theologians that think that's kind of what Luke did here. I don't agree with it. It's like, I don't think he ran out of paper and just said, well, that's the end, all right? So there are people that approach thinking about scriptures that write books, and that was their summation, was that he ran out of paper. I don't agree with that. The second 
is a little bit more believable, especially if you know that in Luke's life, most likely he lived at least 20 years beyond this book. So it's not like he just, for some real explanation, is it that he chose to deliberately not tell us. I don't think that's it either, because I do think he knew what happened to Paul. I do think he maybe even could have been present when Paul was executed. I think there could be other things that he witnessed. But the likelihood of Paul not knowing what else happened in the story, in my opinion, is very slim. And so that then means that if he knew what was going on and he chose to leave it out, then that then says about the author, there must be some kind of intent. Because if you do this with that much intent, there must be something really important that we could gather. And the third thing is that Um, Luke failed to leave room for the key moment of the story that maybe hadn't happened yet. This is what I really believe in my spirit, is that he knew that this wasn't the climax. He knew that this was a letter that was to be continued. He knew that this was a story that wasn't about Paul. He knew that this was a story. And if he had continued on, I think the early church could have put emphasis on Paul very similar to what he did in the Gospel of Luke, where the emphasis was on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And people in the early church could have been like, well, how did Paul die? What happened to him after he died? Did people wait around for him to come back from the dead? Right? And so I believe that there's an incredible amount of intentionality here on why he ended it this way. Because if we look at the book, at the way Luke had written it, it is very easy for us, based upon the last several weeks, to view um, somebody as the hero of the story. Who would we think, based upon the chapters we've been reading, would be the hero of this story? Say it out loud. Paul. But who is the hero in the book of Acts? Jesus. And what does Paul call him? Lord Jesus Christ. So if I truly believe that one of the reasons why Paul is ending his letter this way, or excuse me, Luke is ending this letter this way regarding Paul is so that we focus on Paul's words and not on Paul's life. We do focus on Paul's life to see how he was faithful, but yet we're looking at the fact that his faithfulness, his imprisonment, his shipwrecks, his turbulent life, his joyous moments was to proclaim that the one on the throne was the Lord Jesus Christ. Not that his life was to be the example for us to look to to worship him, but his life was, I need to show people what it looks like to be obedient to what God has individually asked me to do. Paul had a specific mission, a specific plan that God had asked him to do. And so the real victor, the real hero in the book of Acts is Jesus. Jesus as Lord. And then it goes on to say that there was a boldness to Paul that nothing was going to stop him from telling people that Jesus was Lord. And he did that for two years from this home. I love how Paul actually in this passage for the first time calls him the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. Because he now has a Jewish audience because he's viewed as a sect of Judaism. He's like, no, look, we're all in this together. He's looking at Gentiles, saying to them, we're all in this together. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so frustrated in our world today, is that so many people worship in so many different denominations when there is only one church. There is really only one body of Christ. But because of the ways that we feel comfortable in our likenesses, in our preferences, is that we want to be with people that are most like us because that's easy when God has called us to be a people that is with everyone. 
and not just the things that are comforts. A couple of things reflecting on the book of Acts. This hero of ours, the Lord Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the Lord, who was a humble servant himself, who laid his life down himself, who modeled prayer to the Father for us so that we could see what it looks like on a daily basis to say, Lord, what is your will? Okay, I'm going to go do it. Lord, what is your will today? I can go do it. Jesus modeled for us in our flesh and blood what we can do every day. The only thing he did that we can't do is give salvation through the sacrifice of my life, but the sacrifice of my life and suffering can reveal the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ to you. And so we can model Christ, we can pursue Christ, we can come after him. But the story of Acts, the reason why I believe Acts ends the way that it is, is that now you are the new servant. We are the new servant. We are now the Paul. We are now the other named individuals that were in this letter. We are now another representative, the image of Christ in the world, and we are meant to go on. And if you look at this, this means that the new servants are going to go through journeys and trials of their own. They're going to go through pains. They're going to go through sufferings and some version of some kind of shipwreck. We are all going to still be reaching and expanding the kingdom into places where other people think they're Lord or they're being held in captivity. We are going to find that there are places in geography that we still need to go to and still need to send people with the hope of Jesus Christ. I had a friend, um, his name's Paul. He lives in Paul, which is interesting. Um, not the one in the book, but a real-life Paul. Um, I've, I've known him for a long time. We served on staff together in Atlanta, and he's been following our story as a church, and he wanted to make sure that I wasn't getting into a, a discouragement or a pit of despair, so to speak. So he flew up to see me last Sunday night and hung out with me on Monday, and he was sharing a story about this suburban Atlanta community that has some of the most diverse, it's one of the most diverse zip codes in our country. There's over 140 nationalities of people from around the world that live there, and many of them as like refugees and there's a, a group of refugees from Africa that are not really mingling well with others because they are just feeling like they're being misunderstood or they're not allowed to worship, they're not allowed. And so there's a distance between them and many others. And what a person in their church figured out was is that one act of love that they are looking for is that they can't get camel's milk in the United States. They can't go to the store and buy camel's milk. Any of you ever just went and got, bought camel's milk? All right, it's, it's hard. And so what Paul and the staff did is the, um, you can't just sneak up to somebody's camel and be like, I'm going to steal a little bit of that. I mean, they're not, they're not, rel- they're not around, right? It's not like you're going to get into the zoo and they're going to let you sneak into the camel area, right? And so, um, so he found, though, a company out in the Midwest that has camels and they sell camel's milk. And so they spent $5,000 to go to this producer and ask for bottles, small bottles of camel's milk. And these group of people from the church went house to house and handed them a gift of camel's milk and said, welcome. And it has totally changed the paradigm of the conversation. And so it worked so well that the church paid for a subscription for this family to deliver milk every month for six months. The church paid for it. It's expensive. But what is it going to take for this group of people to know they're loved? They belong. They're accepted. They're wanted in life and friendship and family. The book of Acts shows us how 
Paul, in the power of the Holy Spirit and a team with him, comforted men, women, and children, confronted rulers, talked to disabled people, how they interacted with local authorities, how they interacted with governors, how they even interacted with wandering tent makers, how they interacted with philosophers in the marketplace. In the book of Acts, we find out how the, the Lord Jesus Christ interacted with a young man who fell asleep in church service and fell out of a window. That's in the book of Acts. There are people that we can relate to that the gospel of Jesus Christ needs to go to, reminding us one more time here at the very end that you and I are in the drama. We are in the story. Acts ends with a sense of longing that there needs to be more character development. And if you're listening on podcasts, I'm making awkward gestures towards the audience, like as if you are included in the story. You are one of the characters. So I believe Acts 28 ends with the question, what are you going to do? Really, it's up to us. I don't think, and it was funny yesterday, I think Nikki Lerner, who spoke at the Ethnos Conference, said it the best when she said, you don't have to fast for 40 days to say, what does God want me to do? God, I just need you to make it clear. I just don't know what to do, so I'm going to fast. We know what God wants us to do. Let's just be honest. We just need to do it. And, and the thing is, is that when you take a step to do it, the Holy Spirit empowers you. That's why I'm really excited. There's a pastor I follow out of L.A. His name's Erwin McManus. He has a new book coming out. And it might actually be out, but the whole book is written on, around the fact that God, God is creatively giving you a task, all of us. But he doesn't just say, go and do it. As soon as you take a step towards it, he gives you the power to accomplish it. But it doesn't mean that your storms stop, your trials stop, all the things, the, the forces at work against you are going to continue, but he gives you the power to get through it all because he's making you a promise. I want you to do that. And if I ask you to do that, I'm going to give you the power to do that. And so I thought one of the ways to kind of tie in our story as a church and the end of Acts was this illustration. I've got this bottle of sparkling cider, which is my favorite smelling kind, right? This is the kind when I pop this, I'm like, I want to enjoy it for a moment. You know, this is good. It's sweet. But the thing that I want to draw your attention to is this glass. This is a, just a standard good old glass. All right? There's nothing extra special about it. Like, you could drop it and replace it for like 3 or $4. So this isn't like a super expensive. It looks really expensive, um, but it's not. But it's sufficient for the need. And so this glass, I want us to say that this is us. Not because I'm playing on the television show that's really famous, but this is, this, this is us. This is, this is, when I say this, this is our discipleship, this is our worship, this is our evangelism, this is our serving the poor, this is the things you do that nobody knows about, this is um, the band rehearsals, this is the setup for gallery kids, this is our staff, this is everything that is us. This is even the $350,000 a year that makes our church budget up. This glass represents us. Everything, heart, mind, soul, strength, ministry, the whole thing is who, 
Everything that God wants us to be or everything that we feel like is obedient is represented by this glass. And I feel like that God doesn't just want us to be here. This, 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 is, this is everything. This is us fully staffed, fully... This is benevolence inside of our church family. According to our budget and doing the math and projections, we could care for each other. Nobody's going to be hungry in our church family. Nobody's going to lack for shelter in our church family. We can provide transportation for, for people. We, this glass represents our ministry with everything that we desire to do. I mean, that's it. Everything. Budget, personnel, the whole deal. But what I feel like is God doesn't want this. And the danger is, is that a lot of churches, when their cup gets full, they decide that they want a bigger cup. Right? That's not, let me tell you this, as long as I'm a teacher here, and as long as I'm a part of the eldership here, we are never going to do this. We are always going to keep who we are and what we need to what fits us best. Because as a church, we are not called to fill the cup. We are called to be generous. We are called to be overflowing. We are called to be able to supply more. When we meet who we are, when we are fully who we are, if we're walking in Acts 2019, out of the overflow of our cup, we can build schools in Guatemala. We can give children food this summer who are in summer programs who, because they only eat two meals a day at school, and then when the summer comes, they live in fear. How am I going to eat this summer because I'm not in school, because I get most of my meals a day in school? We can, we can meet the needs of people in and around us. We can find out when there's people in circumstances where there's storms that hit other nations or storms that hit our own nation. We can give out of the overflow of our cup. And so can I ask us as a church, can we get to the point where our cup is full and overflowing by October 1st? I'm not asking us to do it next week. But can we recover from the the sluggish year that we've had? where we engage in volunteering in our church, where Rachel and others who have been serving our kids are no longer begging us for kids volunteers or people to host or, um, or people that want to serve and, and engage in setting up and tearing down and serving food on Sunday mornings where we're constantly begging. Can we get to the point where we are overflowing? Can we get to the point where every month of March, like this one, where... We're not, we're three weeks into the month and the budget's met knowing that everything that now comes in is bonus. We can now meet needs and do things in the city that we didn't even dream of being able to do. I think when you look at the book of Acts and you look at Paul's life, he wasn't saying just get to your cups full. It wasn't a life saying, I just, gonna, I just want to have my portion. And there wasn't a church in the early church that was like, let me just have my portion. It was always be generous, be generous, be generous with your life. What would it look like for us to follow the example of faithfulness to God that Paul did and others did in the book of Acts? And could we get to the point where we're not just satisfied with our cup, but we want it to overflow so that other people can benefit from our generosity? Let's pray.